Hey, if you don't know me, my name's Weston Brown. I was that guy. I was sitting right there just a second ago. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant, also the pastor of Covenant Shreveport, which is a new church that we started uh, about a year ago, and uh, we've been gathering in homes for the last year or so, and uh, we are actually on the precipice now of having our very first uh, Sunday morning worship gathering as Covenant Shreveport, which will be happening in uh, just a few weeks, the first Sunday in July, which is also, coincidentally, the first Sunday of Sabbath here at Covenant in Bozier. So Bozier will not be meeting that Sunday. And so if you are around, we would love to invite you to come join us in Shreveport uh, on that first Sunday in July, July 7th, to be a part of our very first ever Sunday morning worship gathering over there. Uh, So we're continuing in our study of the book of Exodus today. And it is not in any way an exaggeration to say that we could spend years going through the book of Exodus. There is so much here. We could spend a lot of time dissecting this book, uh, but don't worry, we are not going to do that. Uh, We are instead trying to get through this uh, by uh, the end of maybe the beginning of fall, the beginning of school, somewhere around then. And so today what we're doing is we're picking up in Exodus chapter 24, and I want to give us just a brief reminder on where we are in kind of the narrative arc of the book of Exodus, where we are in the timeline, and then I want to dig into the account that Jason just read, and um, it it involves the people of Israel receiving the law of God, receiving this covenant from the Lord, and agreeing to do what God has called them to do. So at this point, the whole of Israel is encamped at the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai, which is in the middle of this peninsula desert called uh, the Desert of Sinai or the Sinai Peninsula. Um, now, at this point in time, we are only 60 to 90 days out from the nation of Israel fleeing from the land of Egypt. And one of the most mind-boggling parts of this whole story to me is just the sheer size of this group. Um, we, we know, like for certain, based on Scripture, that there were 600,000 men on foot. That's the way that the Bible talks about it. And, and more than likely what it's describing there are men who are of military age. So somewhere in their late teens to, to maybe somewhere in their maybe early 50s. So that's kind of the range of age of men that Scripture's talking about when it says there were something like 600,000 men on foot. So a conservative number for the whole group is actually a number that's like 2.4 million people, right? If we start talking about women, children, boys who are not yet of military age, old men who are no longer of military age, something like 2.4 million people are roaming around out in the Sinai Desert. This is a massive group, and just for comparison, 2.4 million people would be something like roughly double the size of the city of Dallas. And the Sinai Peninsula is an area that's roughly the size of North Louisiana, so, so just imagine this, this occurrence. Like imagine if there was a group of people wandering around North Louisiana 
roughly the size or even double the size of the city of Dallas. I mean, the numbers are kind of inconsequential at that point, right? Whether it's a million people or two million people, it doesn't matter if there's a million people roaming and they were in Jonesboro the other day and now they're in like Homer and like you, like everybody's going to know, right? You don't, you don't hide that. You don't keep it a secret. So word is starting to get out, not only of what has happened in Egypt like, and the decimation of the ar- armies of Egypt, but word starting to get out about this massive group of people who are wandering around in this desert. So as we pick up today, they are encamped at the bottom of the mountain. And in Exodus 19, as the people have arrived at the mountain, the Lord declares that he intends to make a covenant with the people. God says in chapter 19, starting in verse 4, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what God's saying there is reflective of what he says in multiple places in this book, which is something to the effect of, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is the relationship that God desires to have with the people of Israel. So God says, I am calling you out among the nations. I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. But the one caveat to all of that is this. I expect you to do what I tell you to do. I expect you to do what I tell you to do. So at that point, in Exodus 19, God began declaring to Moses, who is the de facto leader of this tribe of people, God starts declaring to Moses what it would look like for the people to be obedient to him. And this is where we started to get what is known as the Mosaic Covenant or the Law of God It's referred to in a couple of different ways. God literally started handing down his rules to the people through Moses. This started with the Ten Commandments that we have talked about over the last few weeks. But the Ten Commandments are really just the tip of the iceberg. By by the time we get to our text today, we've not only gotten the Ten Commandments, we've gotten laws about building altars, laws about slavery, laws about making restitution, uh, laws about how to treat vulnerable people within society, laws about festivals to the Lord, laws about the Sabbath itself, and and there is still much more to come. Um, But God, at this point, calls the people to stop and to like confirm or affirm that they are actually going to do what he is calling them to do. And this is what we see today in this bloody covenant affirmation ceremony. This is how God has, in a sense, directed the people to sign on the dotted line. This is them coming to the table and saying yes to everything that the Lord has asked of them. And as we read, the people declare all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now listen, there there are a lot of different directions that we could go this morning with this text. We could spend our time talking about covenants in general. That's something we like to talk a lot about around here at Covenant Church. Um, What, you know, what is the nature of biblical covenants? How, how, How incredible is it that a perfect and holy God would even enter into covenant relationship with a fallen and sinful people? Um, There's a lot there. Uh, We could talk about 
the peace offering ceremony that is this covenant affirmation ceremony um, where animal blood is flung on everything on the people, on the altar, like it's, there's just blood everywhere. And, and listen, most of us go like, what in the world is going on here? It is so different from anything we've ever experienced. It's so far removed from our modern culture. It seems disgusting and unsanitary to us. And so it's, it's kind of mind-boggling what's happening here. And, and listen, there is a lot of gold to be mined in those things and more. But what I really want us to consider today is more of an overarching question, which is the question of why. Like, why is God doing this? And, and I ask that question today not just because we want to understand God more and maybe understand some of his underlying motivations, but also because I believe that God is actually calling us to the exact same thing. I actually think God is calling us to the exact same thing. So we're going to do like some systematic theology this morning um, because how we understand the narrative of the Bible actually helps us answer the question, why is God doing this? And the beauty of the Bible is that we both know how things begin and we know how things are going to end. So let's start at the beginning this morning. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start at the beginning, then we're going to go to the end, and then we're going to fill in the in-between. Genesis chapter 2. So hopefully we all know that what the Bible teaches is that in the beginning God creates everything. And the way that he creates is by literally speaking things into existence. Notably, in the beginning, God creates a man and a woman, and he creates a garden. But this is no ordinary garden, is it? Look at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Fast forward one chapter to chapter 3. Here's what we see, starting in verse 8. It says, They, they being the man and the woman, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So right there, something is abundantly clear. This garden, this place where the man and woman are, this place that God has created, is not anything like the world that we live in, is it? It's not anything like the world that we live in. In this garden, every tree is beautiful, right? I don't know if you guys have seen my backyard, but it's not the Garden of Eden by any stretch of the imagination. I got stuff like coming over the fence from other people's yard, like all kinds of kudzu and like all just all kinds of gross stuff that's just growing everywhere. We see that food is abundant. There are also, notably, incredible spiritual things in the midst of the garden. There's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is the tree of life. We learn that the man and the woman hear 
They hear God walking in their midst. And we see that they converse with him. They talk back and forth with God. Later we learn that there are spiritual beings in the garden. Not only God, but also the cherubim as well. So I live uh, in Shreveport in the gardens, or next to the gardens at the Norton Art Gallery. And, and we love to go over there with the kids and spend time. It's, it's a beautiful place, but it is nothing like this, right? There is no tree of life in the middle of those gardens. There is no like abundant food source. So what's going on here? In this place, before the fall of man, before the man and the woman were cast out because of their sin, something unique is happening. And that unique thing is that there really is no separation between heaven and earth. Right? In this place, at this point in time, there is an overlap between heaven and earth. And this is key. This heaven-earth overlap was representative of God's good and perfect design for creation. Like part of what we are latching onto when we go back to this point in the story is the fact that this ultimately is how God originally made things to be. And so there is this overlap a realm where he reigns, but where he is also with his creation. But the sin of man and, and the woman as well destroys this overlap, and things are never the same again. So let's fast forward to the end. Revelation chapter 21. Turn there with me. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. What we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus will return... And the book of Revelation is the Apostle John's vision of what is to come. And I think this is so fascinating, guys. Here's what it says, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and look at this, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Meaning, I am returning all things to their original intent. I am resetting this. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So in the beginning... Heaven and earth overlapped the creator with the creation. And in the end, heaven and earth will once again overlap the creator with his creation. God dwelling with his people. I want you to be my people and I want to be your God. But what about the in-between? Let's look at our text today, Exodus 24. I believe that what we see throughout the scriptures is this. God wants to be with us. 
God wants to be with his creation. God wants to be with his people. The language with Israel is literally the same language as what we just read in Revelation. You will be my people. I will be your God. And, and, and that's not a peer relationship, is it? It's not a peer relationship. God isn't saying, hey, Israel, I want to be buds. What God is saying is, I want to be your king. I want to be your king. But I'm the kind of king who wants to be with you in your midst, not sequestered away in some palace. I want to dine with you. I want to be in your presence. But here's the deal. Here's the expectation. If I am your king, then what I expect from you is loyalty. Right? If I am your king, then I expect you to do what I tell you to do. Because ultimately, if you don't do what I tell you to do, then what that tells me is that someone or something else actually is your king. Does that make sense? If I'm your king, then you're following me. If I'm your king, you're doing what I tell you to do. But if I'm not your king, then you're not doing those things. Something else or someone else is your king. You're making yourself your king. You're calling someone else. You've latched on to some human goal or worldly idea, and you're going after that, and that's what you are actually loyal to. God says, no, 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 no. That's not what I want from you. I want your obedience. I want you to follow me. So God puts this before Israel, and in a way, he's like proposing to them. I thought it was so interesting in Revelation how it describes this new heaven and new earth, this new Jerusalem that's coming down as being a bride adorned or prepared for her husband. Because in a way, God is reaching out to the nation of Israel and saying, I want us to be together. Look at how I brought you out of Egypt. Look at how I've taken care of you. Um, I have picked you out. To be mine. Now let's make this thing official, right? By entering into a covenant. And one of the things we often say about covenants around here is one of one of the best ways for us to understand that in a modern context is the marriage covenant. Like it's one of the only like true covenantal relationships that most of us have some kind of a sense of. This this relationship where like, here's what we agree to do, and even if things go south, I still agree to do the thing that I said I would do. So in a sense, they have a marriage ceremony. They make a verbal commitment before God. God, we will do everything you've told us to do. And with that in place, God then says, come to me on the mountain. With that commitment in place, God says, come on up. Look at verse 9 in Exodus 24. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who were the sons of Aaron, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Guys, this is like Garden of Eden type stuff, isn't it? They come up onto the mountain. They are literally communing with God. It says they see him. And people get all wrapped up in that. What does that mean? They saw him. 
Sometimes our image of God is like an old white man with a flowing beard. That's, that's not Exodus's depiction of God. Throughout Exodus, here's how God is described, and in our text today as well. He's described as fire and smoke. What our text said is he's like a consuming fire or like a devouring fire. So what does it mean that they saw God? Later on in the book of Exodus, I think it's Exodus 33, God says, no one can see me and live. No one can look me in the face and live. And yet somehow in this moment, we don't know exactly what happened here, but we know on some level they saw the God of Israel. And they left unharmed. Do you see what the writer of Exodus is saying here? They dined in his presence. They saw this incredible scene of like stones or pavement that were, were like sapphires, like under, under his feet in a sense. And it says something here that I don't, I, it really just doesn't even fully translate into English. I don't, I don't think we really understand what is being said here, but it says it was like the very heaven for clearness. Like, what does that even mean? This is one of the things that I think happens when, when people get a little bit of a glimpse throughout Scripture. They get a little bit of a, a view of who God actually is, is there's a sense of we're at a loss for how to actually describe what we have seen and what we have been through. So this is a dramatic moment. This is a spiritual occurrence. This is a overlap, isn't it? Of heaven and earth. Look at verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on, t- on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. In these moments, once again, heaven and earth is overlapping. God is with his people, and the reality for us today, church, is, is I believe God is actually calling us into the cloud as well. Like God is calling us out of our everyday lives. He's calling us out of our careers. He's calling us out of our roles as moms and dads, all of those things. And what he is calling us to is the exact same thing he called Israel to. He's calling us to make him our king and to be obedient to him. He is just like Moses. He's calling us to follow him like into the midst of this, what's going to happen? Where does this lead? What is he doing? Can you imagine the amount of faith that it took on the part of Moses to, to walk in the cloud that is proceeding out from a devouring fire that has descended on a mountain? Like, like, this isn't fairy tale, y'all. Like, just imagine for a moment that you're actually in a sea of a couple million people at the base of this mountain, and the glory of God has descended in front of you, and a voice comes out from the middle of this. At one point, there's like a trumpet blast that comes out of the middle of this, and he calls one guy into it. What do you think is going to happen to that guy? Spoiler alert, they all think he's got to be dead. That's what winds up happening. They think there's no way. He's gone 40 days. There's no way that guy's coming back. He's gone. It takes tremendous faith. 
And yet I think that he is also calling us to something similar. Into this overlap of heaven and earth. But here's what's interesting. He's calling you to that not through an intricate set of rules or through sacrificing a bunch of animals and flinging their blood all around. He is calling you into the cloud through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because through Christ, God has actually given us unprecedented access to an overlap between heaven and earth, and we are to be people of the overlap. We are to be people of the overlap. When Jesus came, here here was the basic gospel message that he presented to his hearers. He said, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That was his basic gospel message. Jesus really did not walk around saying, hey, let me tell you who I am. In fact, most of the time, he was kind of veiled about that, wasn't he? He would tell people, hey, don't tell anybody who I am. But what he repeated over and over and over again was the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news being that the kingdom of heaven has come near. So, Jesus said that because that is good news, it should lead us to a place where we turn from the path that we were on and turn onto a different path because it's such incredible news. Who was Jesus, by the way? Yes, he was the Son of God, but, but how is he described in Scripture? Isn't he called Emmanuel, meaning God with us? Don't we talk about the incarnation that the Word became flesh and did what? It dwelled among us. And here's what's fascinating to me. It doesn't stop there. What Scripture teaches us is that if you are a believer, something else has happened, which is that the literal Spirit of God has come to what? Dwell within you. So, so there's, there's been a little bit of a transition here from, from the glory and presence of God on a mountain and God calling out and saying, I want you to be my people, I want to be your God, now come up to me, to the point where now, through Christ, God not only says, I want to be your God, I want you to be my people, God says, I'm actually going to come into your life and live within you. If that isn't God with us, I don't know what is. I want to indwell your life. So within you, believers, is a place where heaven and earth is overlapping. If the presence, if the spirit of the living God dwells within you, then within you is a place where heaven and earth is overlapping. Are y'all following me? Is that making sense? So you are this walking around, talking manifestation of Jesus' gospel, that the kingdom of heaven is coming near. You are this walking around, talking manifestation of the fact that God desires to be with his people, with his creation. 
And as this walking around talking manifestation of the inbreaking kingdom of God, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you. Because you have gone from death to life, because you know the truth, and because the literal power and presence of the living God has come to dwell within you, go and do exactly what Christ has done, which is go and alert people to the fact that the kingdom of heaven is coming near. Theologian David Bosch says that our primary task as the church is to alert the world to the universal reign of God through Christ. Alerting the world to the universal reign of God through Christ. That as a people who have been changed by Jesus, that our task, our purpose should be letting everybody else know that our God reigns and that we have access to him through Christ Jesus. Like that that is the task that he has sent us with. What else does Jesus say? Jesus tells us that we are called to pray. Father, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. So in other words, pray, church, that you would see glimpses of this overlap. Pray that others would as well. And then go, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the gospel of Jesus. Go and tell and show and and, and bring joy and bring love and bring hope to the world. The way that Paul describes this in the New Testament is you are ambassadors. You are emissaries of this new kingdom. That whether you know it or not, if you've been changed by Christ, this is actually the place where you live now. You don't live in Benton. You don't live in Bossier. You don't live in America. You don't live in this world. You live in this kingdom. You have passed from death into life, life eternal. This is the place that you reside in now that maybe has not fully computed with most of us. I know it hasn't with me, but as a person that now lives in this new place, you have now been sent by Jesus as an ambassador of that place to this world to alert this world to the fact that our God reigns through Christ. To the fact that we have been invited into the cloud, as it were. Go with the Spirit. Go with the Gospel. Go alert our world to the fact that our God reigns. Go as an ambassador. Go as an emissary. Go because you have been forever changed by Him. That's what repentance is all about, by the way. Repentance isn't just about not doing the bad stuff I used to do. That's a component. But real repentance is recognizing that because of the gospel of Jesus, because of the significance of that, because of the significance of the kingdom of heaven coming near through him, because of the significance that I now have access to the Father, I now have access to like reconciliation to him, I, I, I don't have to be separated from him because of my sin, right? that he actually can be my king, like that I can sit at his table and dine with him, because of all of those things, why would you ever keep living the way that you were living before? When you come to an understanding of that, why would you not turn off the path that you were on and, and 
devote your full loyalty to him. Here's the problem, though. If, if we want to experience this overlap, we can't live like anybody else. And I'm not just talking about moralism here, guys. I'm not talking about like not drinking and smoking and dancing and going to the boats and all that kind of stuff. This was true for Israel. This is true for us. If we want to be people of the overlap, then we must make the gospel of Jesus the orienting center of our lives. Let me say that again. I think that's huge. If we want to be people of the overlap, then we must make the gospel of Jesus the orienting center of our lives. What does that mean? It means we must intentionally change how we live so that we are governed by him and not by the mores and trends and ideas and whims of our modern culture. That we are truly shaped and formed by him. Again, this is all about repentance. That we would turn from living one way and that we would live differently. This was Israel's downfall, by the way, in the Old Testament. We, we have the benefit of being able to look back and see how they screwed this up and how they failed. They didn't want to be different. They didn't want to be holy. They didn't want to be set apart. They wanted what the other nations had. They looked at the other nations in a covetous way. Um, They said, we don't have a king. We want a real human king. God says, I'm your king. What are you talking about? Yeah, 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 but we want a real king, God. And this goes on throughout the narrative of the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. The beauty of where we are now is that we actually no longer live underneath that covenant that God established with Moses and the Israelites. We live under a new covenant, and we find this new covenant in Christ. And in this new covenant, he is both the power and the sacrifice. So in the same way that the initial covenant that we see in Exodus 24 was established by the power of God, but but is yet solidified with the sacrifice of animals. In this new covenant, Jesus is the sacrifice. And he's this perfect, all-encompassing, once-and-for-all type sacrifice. In the old system, the Israelites had to keep sacrificing animals over and over and over again to atone for sin. In the new covenant... Jesus is both, Scripture says, the author and the sustainer. The continuation of this covenant, and this is incredible news for us, the continuation of this new covenant is not based on your ability to keep it. It's not based on you holding up your end of the bargain perfectly. It is solely based on Jesus. That's incredible news. God has made a covenant with us through Christ, and he's already made provision for the fact that you are incapable of keeping the covenant. Are you following that? God has already made provision for the fact that you are incapable of keeping the covenant. So you may be somebody who goes, man, I love Jesus. He has changed my life, but I still struggle. Do you think that God doesn't know that? Do you think that he didn't know that about Israel? He actually built that into the covenant with Israel as well. That's the whole sacrificial system. 
But in this new covenant, Jesus takes on all of our sin, he takes on all of our guilt, and he pays the price, not us. But God still desires from you the exact same thing that he wanted from Adam and Eve, the exact same thing he wanted from Moses and the Israelites. He wants us to do what he tells us to do. He wants us to make him the orienting center of our lives, the one whom everything revolves around. How many of us can actually say that we are intending and seeking to make Jesus the orienting center of our lives? We may not do that perfectly, but how many of us can even say it's what we want or it's what we're truly going after or it's what we're truly seeking? In order for Jesus to become the orienting center of our lives, then there are some parts of our lives that have to die. Right? In order for Jesus to become the center of, their, of our lives, there's a certain amount of control that we have to let go of, right? In many ways, it's like a cloud, isn't it? It seems a little scary. I don't really know what's on the other side of like totally abandoning control to him. Again, think of the faith that it took for Moses to wade into that. What, what's really on the other side of this? Am I just going to be consumed by fire? Like, what's happening? I think many of us feel the same way about truly abandoning control of our lives to the person of Christ, truly making him the orienting center of our lives. Can I really trust him? Is he really good? What's going to be on the other side of this cloud? And yet, it's exactly what he's called us to, guys. Not an add-on. Not a hobby, not my buddy, not a weekend commitment that I have. The center of everything, the thing everything orbits around, the way I make decisions, the way I decide how our family lives, the way I decide how we spend our money, who I am, where I go, who I talk to, the whole bit. And the reality for many of us in this room today is we're, like, that's not even on our radar. Like, we're chasing after money. We're chasing after, uh, like, the values and ideals of our chosen career field. Uh, we're chasing after a certain uh, family structure. We're chasing after something we've seen on social media. Or we're chasing after uh, the respect of other people. Or we're chasing after, um, you know, something that our parents told us was important. And we have to repent. We have to turn from the path we're on. And we have to follow Christ. And following Jesus doesn't mean going to church. It means everything. That's why it's God's grace that saves us through faith. Faith is central. In all of this, the same faith that it took for Moses to step into the cloud is the same faith that it takes for us to truly abandon ourselves to Christ. So that we might be people of the overlap. So that we might go and alert our world to the fact that our God reigns through Christ. So that other people might see the beauty of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is coming near. And little do they know, this the, same, the same thing is true for Jesus, little did the people in Jesus' day know that when he was standing in front of them talking, 
that the literal kingdom of heaven was there in front of them, right? If God's spirit dwells in you, little do your neighbors know, or the people at work know, or the people at your school know, that the literal presence of the living God is inside of you, this person that's teaching school or working at the bank, or who is a stay-at-home mom, that the author and sustainer, the creator of all things, is actually inside of you and you live in a totally different world, in a totally different place. Little do they know that you have been sent to them with the hope and truth and beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this truth. And we are all people who struggle to believe this and struggle to step into this, to be the men and women that you have called us to be. And so I pray, Father, that through the power of your Spirit, that you would lead us to repentance, that we would see the goodness and the kindness of what Jesus has done for us, and that, Father, that we would truly make it our mission to give you everything. That we would let go of the sin that we love. That we would let go of the pursuit of worldly things that have nothing to do with you, but that we think we'll find identity or self-importance in. That we would let go of our desire and need for power and control. That we would truly abandon those things to you, Father. Help us. Help us to want that. Help us to see you as good. We love you. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for this new covenant that you have established in and through Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.